welcome to the 15th episode of the Lebanese uh, Physicians uh, Podcast. Uh, today we'll be discussing uh, palliative care services uh, in Lebanon and beyond, and our guest is Dr. Hiba Osman. Dr. Osman is a graduate of the American University of Beirut uh, uh, Faculty of Medicine. Uh, she's American board certified in family medicine and palliative care medicine and hospice medicine. Uh, she uh, is founder of BELSAM, the Lebanese Center for Palliative Care Services in Lebanon and founding director of the Palliative Care and Supportive uh, Care Program at the American University of Beirut Medical Center. She has since uh, relocated to uh, Boston, where she is currently assistant professor at the Harvard uh, Medical School, and she's a palliative care physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, she's also uh, associate medical director for oncology at the International Patient Center for uh, Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital. Uh, Dr. Osman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Dr. Osman, first I'm going to start with uh, asking you, so how did you decide to move to Lebanon and when did you move uh, to Lebanon initially? Um, so, I moved back to Lebanon in 2003. So, I had, I had gone to medical school at AUB. I came to the U.S. and did my residency and then my fellowship and practiced for a couple of years. And then in 2003, I went back with two of my kids. All right. And... Uh, and I guess when you moved back, were there any palliative care services in Lebanon at the time, or was it still a specialty that was not even considered? It was, honestly, back then, it wasn't even considered by me. So there was no such thing as palliative care. When I moved back, um, I was uh, at AUB. I was partly in public health and partly in the family medicine department. So I'm a family physician by training. And my focus at that point in time was maternal child health. So I did uh, research on moms and babies and um, I did general family practice with, um, with a focus on moms and babies. And it was through my family practice uh, that as my patients got older and sicker, um, I noticed this huge gap in the Lebanese healthcare system. So I, I had actually one particular patient who was in her 90s and got cancer. And uh, we just didn't have the support that she needed to keep her at home, which is where she wanted to be, to make her comfortable. And I had to stumble to make that happen. And that's when I started looking into palliative care and understanding it better. But before that, I had really no understanding or training in palliative care. And how did you come to, to start uh, the palliative care uh, center or service at AUB and subsequently establish uh, outpatient palliative care services? Well, actually, it was the other way around. Um, so when I was, uh, it was my, I have a background in public health and I'm very interested in systems and health systems. So I, I love clinical practice, but I also am a systems thinker. And when I saw this gap in the health system, uh, I uh, thought that we had to develop it. So I kind of started self-training and exploring the possibility of implementing palliative care. At that point, uh, there was no interest at AUB. It was, they weren't in a place where they wanted to establish that kind of service. So I stepped out of AUB, started a private practice and started Balsam. And um, so I started working out in the community uh, first. And a few years later, at that time, AUB was more ready to absorb that kind of practice, and they invited me back to start the palliative care program there. 
Yep, and I think I think part of the reason at the time and, and until recently, I think the palliative care services in Lebanon were not reimbursed, right, uh, by insurance companies. They kind of still aren't. Um, so yeah, the, well, palliative care wasn't even recognized as a specialty in the Ministry right. of Health. So you didn't have that specialty. And so it, if it's not recognized, it can't be reimbursed, right? right. Uh, plus at that time, home care services weren't reimbursed. Uh, and it was mainly rooted in the uh, fact that it's, it's difficult to follow and maintain and ensure that uh, services are being billed appropriately. So the oversight component is lost if it's not in a hospital or a clinic. So, Home care services weren't covered at the time either. It was only later that they started covering home care services. Oh, so and, and how 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 were patients initially? I guess and and afterwards when you started, we'll talk about Belsam in a bit. When we started Belsam, how or or before that, how were patients uh, reacting to uh, discussions about end of life with them or discussions about comfort care uh, with them at the beginning? And how did uh, things change subsequently? Um, it's still, I mean, it's still a work in progress. Uh, people, you know, in our uh, part of the world, it's the patient is less the decision maker. It's the family that makes the decisions. Right. And often they shield patients from their diagnosis even. But as soon as somebody gets sick, the family takes over. And they think that they're protecting the patient when they don't tell them the diagnosis, when they don't give up on them. Um, so the concept of comfort care means giving up on them. Even in our you know, research everywhere uh, in the West has shown that patients towards the end of life would prefer to be at home. And our part of the world, really, what we found when we first started Balsam was that when a patient was towards the end of life, the family would lovingly rush them to the hospital because they're throwing all the resources at them. Families were even going into debt and losing lots of resources, providing um, medical services to someone that they knew weren't going to help but it's part of their show of love that they're they're going to do everything for this person. So in terms of focusing on comfort, that was really a, a process it, it required. We never went into a relationship with a patient or family with that in mind. We went in always as the team that's supporting the primary treating physician, usually an oncologist, and only three quarters of our patients are cancer patients. We have a quarter or not cancer patients, but we our, our role is to support the primary treating physician while they give their treatment to make sure that the patient is as, as comfortable as possible, regardless of their, their illness, regardless of where they are and the trajectory of their illness. And then when we build that relationship and they start to feel the benefits, if they get to a point where there's enough trust and the medical interventions are causing more harm and discomfort than good, and they trust us, we can have this conversation about focusing more on comfort and reducing the aggressive intervention. Right, and uh, and that was part of my experience uh, over there. It takes takes a while to get families uh, to that place, uh, but I can tell you, and then you can tell you more about Belsam, but my my interaction with Belsam was pretty positive when I was there. When you when you reach the point where you convince patients or talk to them about more comfort uh, measures, 
I've, I've been in contact with Belsam and then Belsam will take over from there when we send them home. And I've had pretty good experiences uh, with the visiting, I think, nurses, right, who visit uh, visit uh, their homes and have them ask, can you tell us more about what, uh, what Belsam uh, was doing and its role in uh, the continuation of care for these patients? So very often we would get involved in just symptom management. So patients who had pain or shortness of breath or other, other symptoms, that's when we get involved. Uh, and really it's not, it's not convincing them so much about care. It's uh, about comfort care. It's actually exploring what their values and priorities are, which we don't generally do that in, our, in the Lebanese health system or most places in the region or even here. We don't explore different options. The, the automatic, the default is for medical interventions. We often take people to the OR knowing that we're not going to be able to do anything, but it's the next step. So we do it. So when we build this relationship, we, we communicate with them about the true risks and benefits of every decision they're making, and then they make this choice. So the way this is done, and, and this is one of the places where we were pioneering in Lebanon, is our work is really nurse-led. And we don't have advanced practice nurses or nurse practitioners in Lebanon technically, but this is, our nurses are very, very skilled and they're trained in palliative care. They're supported by physicians, but uh, really the main relationship between the patient and Belsam is through the nurse. Uh, so the nurse builds a relationship and we actually structured it this way so that in our process, when we first take on a patient, the nurse will go for the first visit and do the initial intake with the physical exam, et cetera, uh, do the full assessment, come back to the team. We have an interdisciplinary team with doctors, nurses, a social worker, a psychologist, and a clinical pharmacist. We sit down and set a plan for the patient, but all of this process is led by the nurse. The physician doesn't come into that relationship until a few weeks into the relationship, when by then the patient and the family have bonded with the nurse and learned to trust the nurse and know that the nurse is backed up so she's not acting on her own. And that way, when the physician walks into the relationship, it's not an automatic, they talk to the physician and completely ignore the nurse. The relationship between the nurse and the family is so solid that they remain connected to her, even though the physician comes into the relationship at that stage. And I found too that the, that the nurses are uh, always update the referring physician on the patient's uh, status, which is a very good thing because we always want to know uh, what's happening with our patients after we, we send them out. And I know, I mean, Belsam, we talked a bit about, so th this has filled, I think, a huge gap in, in Lebanon because before that, there was no, when you sent people home, uh, there was no support, I guess, for the families at home, except the families maybe supporting the patient while they were there. And I think that filled a huge gap in, in healthcare in Lebanon. What about, I mean, sending patients out, what about inpatient palliative care services? Uh, Actually, in before, before we go to that, I want to talk, I want to say something about what you said is keeping the physician informed. That's something that evolved. Actually, it was a couple of years into our work uh, where we noticed that um, some physicians felt left out, even though we informally tried to keep them involved. And physicians, you know, especially if they have a long-term relationship with the patient, it's very difficult to hand over the care and not know what happens with the rest of the story. So we, we systematized it so that our referring physicians 
physicians get weekly emails to update them on what's going on with the patient. So those emails are an automatic part of the process. And we also communicate with them by telephone and messaging if something more urgent comes up. And then there's the added layer of some physicians refer a patient to Balsam and they don't want to stay involved. And others want to stay more involved. And so we gauge it based on the physician's wishes and, and we keep them informed that way. And so that relationship is maintained. Right, which which is which is a good thing, and 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 we talk about outpatient telehealth. What, what about inpatient telehealth services? Because where I, I worked at, uh, I worked at uh, LAUMC, it was a hospital when I was there, and we did not have an inpatient telehealth care service. Uh, but I know in other hospitals uh, that option was sort of present eventually, right? So we yeah, we started at AUB, it was the first, um, and we had a consult service. So patients were admitted to other physicians and they would consult the palliative care team for symptom management, for uh, to help with goals of care and discussing the goals of care with patients and families, and also with discharge planning. So when patients were getting ready to go home to make sure that they had the right support services there. So now they have actually uh, palliative care admissions, so patients can be admitted to the palliative care team, uh, which Hotel Dieu was the leader in that in Lebanon. They uh, opened the first palliative care unit with, I think, six or eight beds. So they have a dedicated unit for palliative care where they admit patients either for acute symptom management or end-of-life care. And now I think there are maybe five or six hospitals that have either a consult service or a unit or both. Great, and this is this is. Uh, I think things are moving forward. Uh, it seems like so. I heard also that the and and that, that's what I heard about the palliative care services. Uh, so there's now a committee for pain control and palliative care services at the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon. How was how 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 did this come to be, and when was it established, and what is its role at this time? So this was established, I want to say, in 2011 is when it was established. We had a very huge supporter and the uh, director general of, at the Ministry of Public Health, Dr. Walid Ammar at the time. Um, he's, he's since retired, but he was a very strong supportive of palliative care and helped us move things forward a lot on the policy end. So he was very supportive of getting palliative care recognized. He was very supportive of the process of uh, getting palliative care reimbursed. And um, so there was a ministerial decree that came out towards um, the last couple of years that he was still um, the director general uh, that set the rules for palliative care reimbursement. And what he did was he routed it through the hospital system. So organizations like ours who are taking care of people at home partner with the hospital to do that. So those are kind of the rules now. So it's not a blanket coverage of palliative care yet, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's a decree I was talking about, which came out a couple of years ago, uh, and that was a breakthrough in, in the palliative care world in, in Lebanon. And so my question for you now is with, with the crisis in Lebanon, the economic crisis and, and everything else that's going on, is that affecting, uh, let's say, the funding for Belsam, uh, its work in the country, uh, or are you still able to, to support the organization at this point? Yeah, so the like everybody else, the crises, it's not just one crisis, right. one after the other have really affected our work. And one of those ways being the 
loss of human resources and the brain drain. So since all of this started happening and after the Beirut blast, we've lost one physician and two nurses. And the physician left for another job. The nurses left with no other job. They left the country with the plan that they'll find something. And I'm sure they will, but it was that level of a, you know, people didn't see a future there. So that's one way. Um, I don't know how much we'll be able to retain the people who are still there. They're very committed, but uh, life in Lebanon has become really challenging. Um, and, and paying people has become challenging. So we pay them on paper. Um, there is no trans, you know, money transactions have become really hard and definitely donations have been very affected. Um, so families who used to donate to us regularly because we cared for somebody for them in the past aren't able to donate anymore. So some of our, we've lost some of our regular donors. Um, there's much less liquidity. And then of course, COVID, we're a home care organization. And uh, you can imagine um, for a staff to go into people's homes has become much more challenging. So we've had to also shift and do work differently to accommodate for that. And this, this is, I think, this, this is very concerning because I, I can see the role that, that Belsam and, and other organizations have played in the palliative care world in Lebanon. And, and, and hopefully you will be able to continue to work there because if it does not continue, then there will be a huge gap and the, the after patients uh, care after they leave uh, the hospital. And do you think, like, how, how are you trying to get some extant donations to, in addition to, to internal donations? Honestly, I've, it's, it's been hard uh, to do. So we haven't put effort um, into that. We have, uh, we have an account with Act for Lebanon, which is a 501c3. Uh, so people can donate through um, Act for Lebanon. But people have been... I mean, it's difficult to know what to donate to in Lebanon because there's so much need across the board. Right, um, right. And I, I actually feel guilty asking people to donate and support because, you know, there are people going hungry. There's just so much going on that, that you feel badly asking for people's money when, when they can be buying food for families and things like that. What I've done to support from here from Boston is a program that we started in January of uh, colleagues who are international leaders in palliative care have stepped up and uh, offered support. And so they have been leading the weekly interdisciplinary team meeting with our team through Zoom remotely. So they joined the team and these are superstars in palliative care who are providing guidance and support and education, but also uh, it's, you can imagine what that does for the morale when people are working in a very difficult setting and they see that people overseas are invested in their work and want to support them. And, and that's also met the need of the decrease in our human resources, but also uh, is supporting the team a lot. Right. And I assume you still visit Lebanon frequently, right? Because you told me you're going there next week. I'm going there this week. I'm going there in three days. Three days. <laughs> so, yeah. you're still, so you're still very involved in the work that's happening over there. So when I, when I first left, uh, I was officially involved. Actually, I took an 80% job here and remained uh, 20% dedicated yeah. to Lebanon. So I, I had a portion of my week dedicated to AUB and Balsam. 
Uh, and I, by design, was going there every three to four months for meetings and different things. After um, the economic crisis and um, that, I mean, I couldn't continue to be employed there. That didn't feel right. And then with the safety issues, I couldn't go there as consistently. So now, I mean, I'm on Belsam's board and I support the team. And I'm also at AUB, I'm an adjunct faculty. So I do several, I have several regional activities uh, that are linked to my affiliation with AUB, but I don't have employment with either of them. With either of them anymore. And uh, one final question is how can people uh, support uh, the organizations there, be it be it monetary or or uh, other support. Well, financial is always really helpful, especially these days. Uh, money from abroad is very helpful. Um, Act for Lebanon has several organizations under its umbrella that people can can uh, support. There's also other organizations like Lebanon Needs uh, that are raising money to support organizations within the country. I think choosing where you want to put your money is, is the more challenging piece. Uh, and also equipment, send, we, you know, PPE was all donated to us. So sending equipment and checking in and asking about the work people are doing, I think underestimate the value of, of that to people working mm -hmm. on the ground. Yeah, because for people who don't know, uh, I mean, any, any fresh dollar or you call fresh dollar donation at this point will go a long way. Uh, because the, the black market rate is, is much, much higher than the official rate currently of the uh, Lebanese currency. And uh, finally, how has the transition been to, to Boston after all these years in Lebanon? Um, so the transition, I'm now um, in my third year. I, uh, I love Boston and I love my job. I'm really lucky. I, I love the work that I do. But... Uh, Nothing compares to the kind of work we do. I think practicing medicine in Lebanon has a completely different flavor. Um, the relationships you build with patients and the, the connections are just invaluable. And I've, I could never replicate that here, ever. Right, I agree. We were just talking about it, I think, how they still contact you and ask you all kinds of questions, uh, even many several years after you've, you've left. Yeah, and I love it. Actually, my WhatsApp number is still my Lebanese number so that my patients can still reach me. So my WhatsApp is Lebanese. My U.S. number is for patients here. And my WhatsApp is very active with, with people checking and double checking what they need to be doing, especially now with COVID. And so I, can I, I can tell you I did the same thing too. My WhatsApp is still living my Lebanese number and my, still my U.S. number. Best way to stay connected. Yeah, and I feel also that it, it still gives you a connection to the country. Like you still, you still have not left completely. You still have a connection to, to the country by your WhatsApp number. Yeah. So uh, yes, thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Osman, for being uh, or agreeing to be on the podcast uh, with us today. And in summary, I think we discussed uh, the evolution of palliative care services in Lebanon, and and how it has progressed significantly over time. And we hope that this economic crisis will uh, end soon so uh, there's no further loss and human resources and the services that are there will remain there uh, for a long time. Inshallah. 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 Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.